Welcome to the world of unsexy. From scrap metal to timber, estate planning to freight pooling, this show is a meandering exploration of just how sexy unsexy industries can be. I'm your host, Elaine Zelby, investor at SignalFire and eternally curious human being. In this podcast, we'll peel back the layers of niche and esoteric markets, understanding the history and looking at the future through the eyes of the pioneering entrepreneurs willing to bring technology and exponential improvements to these often overlooked spaces. Join me on a fascinating journey into the unsexy. Hi, everybody. My guest today is Jesse Solomon, the co-founder of Mickey, a B2B commodities marketplace that manages supply, freight bookings, and payments, making it fast and easy for customers to purchase, track, and acquire the commodities they need. Jesse, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. Well, Jesse, your career definitely did not start in the commodity space. You started in the music industry. So <laughs> can you walk us through a little bit about your career path and your time in the music space and what led you to do Mickey? Absolutely. Well, I uh, actually studied music in college at the University of Miami. I was a vocal jazz performance major. And um, I moved to New York in 2015 to work in the music business where I met my current business partner, Alex Rabins. And um, we had a a little department within Endeavor um, or William Morris, um, one of the largest talent agencies in the world, um, doing brand licensing. Um, So we started in the music department booking, you know, Harry Potter live in concert um, or, you know, Shrek or How to Train Your Dragon. And we would build magic tours and things like that. Um, and eventually had our own department doing brand licensing. Um, and we left to build Mickey, named after the biggest brand in the world, Mickey Mouse, um, thinking that we would create a, a B2B marketplace for brand licensing. Um, and we would use our brand connections to get manufacturers to sign up, solving the chicken and the egg uh, conundrum. And um, we quickly realized that, um, you know, manufacturing in America was not necessarily all about um, traditional manufacturers like within Asia, um, but we are one of the biggest suppliers of natural resources in the world. So we were doing little Google AdWords um, saying, are you a U.S. based manufacturer? Sign up for Mickey to sell your product overseas. And um, one of the first guys to sign up put photos of trees on our marketplace. And we were just like, what is this? Why did we quit our jobs? <laughs> and I called the guy and I said, hey, this is Jesse for Mickey. Uh, we see you put trees on our marketplace. Was this a mistake? And he goes, Y'all said sign up for Mickey to sell your product overseas. People want my logs overseas. Y'all don't sell logs. And I was like, of course we sell logs. We love logs. And we like go to Mississippi. We meet this guy. We're meeting truckers and loggers and loaders and um, people at the port. And we quickly realized that, you know, there's this whole international market for U.S. forest products. Um, So we go back to New York and we're like, how are we going to find a customer for um, this guy's logs? And we end up finding a guy who manufactures wood pallets for the Dole Pineapple Company in Subic Bay, Philippines. Um, And we brokered the deal. We all go back to 
to Mississippi. We're like looking at the logs, you know, pretending like we know what's going on. And um, that first week, he sent us $40,000. We brought the logs to the port. Um, we paid our, our logger 30 grand. We paid the trucker five grand and we were left with five. And we we're like, all right, this is a business. It's a subscription repeating order. Um, it's recurring revenue, something that VCs are always looking for. Um, and let's press on this. So um, we found as many more suppliers as we could and we found more customers. Um, we now sell to um, the the ikea factories across india um, we still sell to that original customer um, who purchases for dole um, and you know many other um, customers around the world that is excuse me that is an amazing story i had no idea where the name came from i was actually very interested in what the name meant and now this makes a lot of sense in that first transaction, were you just faking it until you made it? Just kind of going off the gut and trying to make it seem like you knew what you were doing? Yeah, we were like the first two Jews in Mississippi and we were in the forest looking at logs, like touching the pine trees, being like, these look like good ones. And uh, yeah, I mean, we had some help from the supplier who had done deals like this before. Um, and we had, you know, advisors at the time. But yeah, those early days, we, we didn't know what we were getting ourselves into. Um, we just tried to go after one of the biggest markets in the world and modernize it. And um, I guess, you know, it was kind of uh, dumb luck, you could say, to go after the, this big of a problem. That is fantastic story. Well, for the listeners out there who aren't super knowledgeable about the commodity space in general, can you walk us through a little bit about what the status quo is today? How does it actually work? Who are the suppliers? Who are the buyers? How do things change hands? For sure. Um, so it is essentially the buying and selling of commodities for um, whatever the end use of that product is. So we focus on selling actual physical commodities. Um, and in its simplest form, you are purchasing a product for X, you are shipping it and moving it for Y, and you are selling it for Z um, and making a spread in between. So, um, you know, China manufactures electronics. Um, the United States could be sending back the plastic resin used to, to manufacture those electronics. Um, if a manufacturer in Asia is making T-shirts, we could be sending back cotton. Um, if they're making furniture, we supply the lumber used to make that furniture. And that's kind of the cycle of global trade. Um, and we found that there were tons of websites to purchase these manufactured goods from Asia, but no websites to purchase the raw materials used to manufacture those goods. Um, so that was kind of the impetus behind Mickey. Um, you know, we kind of fell ass backwards <laughs> into selling commodities, but we also had a, a decent thesis going into it as well. Yeah. Um, you alluded to this a little bit before, but it's a huge market. Can you talk a little bit about how big the market is holistically and even where you started with lumber? How big is that space? Yeah, so we started with forest products, kind of like Amazon started with books. Um, and we want to get into all of the big verticals of U.S. export, um, including food and agriculture products, metals, chemicals and energy. Um, but we're really focused on forest products 
that's a $35 billion a year um, business exported from the US each year. Um, and there are trillions of dollars in revenue for the winner in this space. We think it's us. Um, trade is one of the largest sectors of the economy, and there's really no technology um, around the purchasing and procurement of those goods. I still get faxed, pen and paper invoices. Um, you know, it, it's really old school. There have been a lot of investments, obviously, within um, transportation and logistics, um, but we're focusing on what is inside the container. Um, Makes sense. With the world becoming more and more interconnected, how are you seeing shifts in terms of where the supply and demand is coming from? You mentioned there's a lot of these raw, you know, lumber products or forest products that are produced in North America, and there was a lot of demand in Asia. Are you seeing things change as some of the global trade routes trade routes shift? Um, yes. Um, lumber is extremely hot right now, as you may have seen. Um, prices are going up and up and it is because, you know, supply is short and there seems to be an overflowing um, demand um, through coronavirus sawmills kind of prepared for a recession and then the home buying market exploded um, and there was a lack of supply. Um, so more and more um, you're seeing demand all over the world. Um, and not enough resources to fulfill those needs. The crazy part is that there are enough trees for a thousand lifetimes. Um, it's just getting the product to the customer uh, consistently and in an efficient manner. Um, these suppliers might be able to afford to do a deal the first week, um, but due to the nature of global trade, a product sits on the water for four to six weeks, um, the supplier might be able to load that deal week one, maybe even week two, but they need to get paid week three to be able to continue to fulfill that order. And the customer doesn't want to pay until the product gets closer to them. Um, so there's this inherent need um, for a middleman. So that is where um, Mickey comes in. Um, business used to be regional, so that supplier could just sell to Georgia Pacific for 50 cents on the dollar. Um, but now it's becoming more and more global and these suppliers are understanding that there is an international market for their product um, where they can get paid more. So Mickey is enabling these independent suppliers of natural resources to go over the top of these traditional um, aggregators and direct to consumers overseas, um, cutting out you know, multiple layers of middlemen. And we are making that process more transparent. Um, and easier and paying more than a traditional aggregator would. You mentioned a little bit about some of the payment flows in this industry, and I'm sure there's a huge demand for working capital and also just a lag in terms of net payment terms. Is that one of the main pain points that you're seeing in the industry today? Yeah, and it's a big reason why this business hasn't been modernized. Um, nobody really needs a matchmaking service um, what these suppliers need is working capital. Um, so you see a lot of factoring businesses, um, but the, we, we see what we're doing as the way to tackle this issue. Um, we've created what's essentially a 
platform for physical commodities traders to facilitate their business. Um, so kind of like a Glencore in the cloud um, where traders are bringing over um, their book of business and they're bringing over their network of suppliers that have been vetted, that they've been working with their whole careers. Um, and we are just their balance sheet and their platform to facilitate those deals. We have a logistics department, um, we have an operations team, and we kind of just make it simple and easy for them to um, facilitate these orders. I have a, you know, a, a food trader um, who came to me yesterday and said, I have $64 million of soybeans uh, a, per month that can be sold I, how much can you guys finance of this? And the reality is that we're a startup and we don't have that type of capital to facilitate that business. Um, but some someday we will. And the size of the deals are enormous and they're out there. In that example you gave with the soybeans, did they have buyers or they were also looking for you to find the buyers on the other end? No, these traders come to us with customers and suppliers. Um, they have the deal set up. Um, they just need, you know, insurance on the customer in case of a buyer default, which we provide. Um, they need help with logistics and trucking. Um, but really, the balance sheet and financing the deal is um, the, the biggest value we provide. Interesting. That's incredibly interesting. So it seems like in terms of traditional marketplaces have a little bit of this cold start problem where you have to acquire both the supply and demand. In your case, it seems like just acquiring the supply brings with it the demand. It is crazy how much demand is out there. Um, we probably only do one out of every 10 deals that we have on the table, um, just due to the fact that um, it's a supply side constraint. Like I will continue to talk about this. Um, the supply is there, it exists. It's just getting it to the right place for the right price consistently. These are manufacturers who need a consistent supply. They have an import supply chain, just like we have an export supply chain. They can't take a thousand containers at once. They need a hundred containers a week um, consistently in perpetuity. So that is really um, the pain point. In terms of tech adoption in this industry, I'm seeing some shifts in some of the very legacy B2B marketplaces where you have millennial buyers now coming to the table. You have people that have a smartphone in their hand all day, every day. And so people are a little bit more used to click button, make something happen and having that seamless user experience and removing the fax machine. Are you seeing the same in the commodity space? How are they shifting in terms of tech adoption? I'm seeing younger generations um, stepping into the ownership roles within family businesses. Um, a lot of importers and exporters are much more open to using technology. Um, but really, if you can supply the product, they're interested in purchasing it at the right price. Um, the big incumbent players don't see a need to change the way that they're doing business because I'm sure they're making um, so much cash they don't know what to do with it all. So 
Um, they are not implementing any new technology like the Georgia Pacifics um, or the warehousers. Um, but there is definitely um, a, a white space as far as customers, you know, wanting to know um, where their order is at any given time or being able to pay online or really just being able to find a supplier that can um, fulfill their needs consistently. So there's definitely a shift um, towards younger and younger um, people operating in this business. Um, although it is really a, an old boys club as far as these physical commodities traders go. Um, we are some of the youngest guys in this business um, and we've been going after a lot of, you know, young, talented um, traders and um, people that kind of can see things from our vantage point. I am definitely not surprised that you guys are some of the younger folks in the room. <laughs> On the flyer side of the equation, are you seeing more consolidation in the space or more fragmentation in terms of longer tail and more mom and pop suppliers being able to stay independent? Definitely tons of fragmentation. There are thousands of independent sawmills across the United States um, that would love to be able to sell overseas that are selling to traditional um, exporters um, or brokers and they have no transparency into what their product is actually worth in the international market. Um, so we are helping to provide them that transparency. Makes sense. What, um, you know, one thing I heard you described as the inverse Alibaba, you know, this company is a $630 billion company, essentially. Have you studied them in terms of how they got so big? And are there any lessons you've learned and taken away from Alibaba's success? For sure. I think everyone who wants to create a product would like to find cheap manufacturing. And very few people have the relationships or want to go to China and meet with manufacturers. So Alibaba kind of took advantage of that story. Um, and from what I understand, they were able to transact from, you know, state-owned company to state-owned company, um, kind of increasing their sales. And we obviously don't have that luxury. Um, Alibaba charges a listing fee to suppliers um, to be able to, to be uh, on Alibaba's service. Um, and the suppliers that we deal with wouldn't pay for that service. Um, they don't care about technology. Um, these are, you know, some of the older school guys I was um, referring to. Um, so you need to provide um, more value than that. And that is why we are um, the actual marketplace transacting and not just providing like a SaaS fee to um, be able to use our service. Got it. Have one dream of mine has always been to go on a container ship. Have you ever actually been on one? <laughs> I have not been on a container ship. Um, I'm glad I was not on the container ship that got stuck in the Suez Canal. Um, we actually had containers on the boat that was right behind the Suez, uh, the, the evergreen that got stuck. Yeah. Um, so that was <laughs> quite a headache to deal with, but, uh, 
you know, there's there's tons of problems to tackle every day. And that was one I did not see coming, but it definitely won't be the last. Have there been any other situations? That's obviously an anomaly and a unique one that probably affected, you know, tens, if not hundreds of, uh, you know, marketplaces and suppliers, manufacturers. But as you've immersed yourself in this space, not being an industry native, have there been any other times where you were kind of caught on your toes or had to, you know, learn on the fly something interesting about how you navigate the waters here? Yeah, I mean, there. everybody always asks us about um, what do you do if a buyer doesn't pay you? Um, but we insure all of our customers in case of buyer default. Um, you know, sometimes it can get hairy and there have been delays in payment, but luckily we've never had buyer default. I'm sure we will someday. Um, but <laughs> yeah, there's, there, you just need to make sure that you know who you're doing business with and you've done your KYC, um, and you've really vetted all of your, your customers and suppliers, which is a process that we have in place um, on the Mickey platform. Um, so that was really an anomaly. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm there are always shipping delays, but you kind of just need to keep your customers updated um, and make sure everybody knows, you know, what's going on all the time. What is this, the current status quo of expectation in terms of how long something takes from the point of time when I am the buyer, I place an order with you, when do I expect to get it? Um, it depends where it's coming from and where it's going to. Um, if it's going to Europe, it could be three weeks. If it's going to Asia, it's more like four to six weeks. Um, it, it really just depends. Um, steamship boats are more like a train rather than a direct flight on a plane in the sense that um, they stop at multiple locations along that route. They don't just go direct back and forth. Um, so there can be delays in each port that it, it stops at along the way. Um, and you can track that on a shipping lines website. Um, but companies like Flexport and others have made that much cleaner and simpler to see where your product is at any given time. Um, and companies like a Flexport or a Convoy for Trucking um, you know, could be vendors of ours in the sense that they provide freight forwarding services, whereas we're selling the actual commodity. After you move on from Forest Products, where will you go next and why? So we have a natural gas trader, um, formerly of Citadel, on staff building out our energy department. Um, we, we started with Forest Products because they were kind of the cheapest product. Um, and, you know, currently we're facilitating um, that working capital float with our balance sheet. And if a deal went wrong, we wanted to make sure we didn't go bankrupt. Um, but also Forest Products are the cheapest and the heaviest. And we figured if we could figure that out, that we would be able to um, go into the more expensive commodity verticals. So we are allowing these physical commodities traders to um, lead us into these new frontiers. They are the experts in the space um, and they are the ones who really know how to 
um, transact within their space. Um, we've started with you know U.S. export, um, but the technology we've built is agnostic to region of the world and it's agnostic to product vertical. Um, so we are doing deals where we're importing to the United States. We're doing deals where we are selling from Brazil to India um, and we are transacting within the energy space. Um, we are bringing on um, one of the largest sellers of RV panel parts, plywood um, in the United States. Um, we're bringing on a trader who's, you know, been at Walmart for 18 years and it worked at Tyson Foods. Um, and he's the guy who has that extremely large soybean deal. Um, so we are slowly but surely breaking into these new categories, which is really exciting for us. Um, but we see each of these products as widgets. Obviously, there are nuances um, to each commodity vertical, but the traders are the ones who understand those nuances um, and help us to build technology around each of these spaces. Um, and so I hope that gives you kind of an overarching view of, of which way we're headed. Absolutely. And I love it. You start with some of the more gnarly, challenging ones, and then you can go from there and move into easier categories. So makes sense. And then you prove you can actually handle it. So very, very smart. For sure. Are, are there, if you weren't working on Mickey, I'm sure you've learned about many other problems in this general industry through building in it. Are there any other kind of big, hairy problems that you wish somebody else would go and attack? Um logistics and sourcing are really um, the, the biggest issues within the space. Um, like I mentioned, there are tons of companies within the trucking um, and freight forwarding space, uh, but nobody seems to be tackling global trade the way that we are. Um, so it really seems to be, you know, being able to supply the, the natural resource in the container. There is a global shortage of natural resources right now um, and people need product um, to build. Um, with coronavirus, there was a huge increase in demand from China to the US to supply PPE. And um, the trade route from China to the United States um, could be a $3,000 um, per container cost. Um, but the cost to go back was $300. And there are, you know, about 50% of containers are going back to Asia empty. Um, so we are trying to fill those containers as they stack up um, at US ports. You know, the trade deficit has never been as big as it is today. And we are trying to take a swipe at the trade deficit and not a lot of startups um, can say that. So um, there is a, a huge um, imbalance within import and export. And that just means that we are buying more manufactured products from Asia than we are selling out, uh, sending out natural resources. Um, so that is like the, the, real, um, the real pain point within this business. Um, and shipping lines have now started to increase their price on the export because it's so much more valuable for them to import that they just want to get the empty container back to Asia quickly 
um, and fill it up with more manufactured products. So it's causing a real headache um, for exporters from the U.S. And there are no U.S. There are no American shipping lines. Um, so that is kind of an interesting dilemma um, that, you know, there no U.S. shipping lines are willing to help the U.S. exporters because none exist. Yeah, even when I am driving through Oakland and by the port, if you look at all the shipping containers and the, the ships, you can just see what it says on the side and they're clearly not American. And also, it you know, makes a ton of sense in terms of how much trade we do. It's all the on the consumer side. We're buying so many products from Asia, yet you know, we don't have as much that we're, we're shipping back. It makes a lot of sense to try to leverage those empty containers. But it was interesting to hear you say that they just want to get it back as fast and turn turn the container as quickly as possible. They don't want to wait for it to be filled. It's just not economically feasible. So I love that you're trying to change that. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, they would rather get it back as quickly as possible than wait for me to fill it up with heavy logs that damage their containers and pay, you know, pennies on the dollar um, to, to send those containers back. Interesting. Well, Jesse, the last question that I always love to ask guests, is there been a piece of advice or wisdom you've been given in your personal or professional life that's really stuck with you and are words you live by? My dad told me when I was young that uh, luck is when preparation meets opportunity. So we have tried our very best to stay prepared and work hard. And we've been given, you know, great opportunities along the way. Um, and, you know, we just want to be the hardest workers in the room. And we have worked as hard as we possibly can to grow this as big as possible in the shortest amount of time. And we, we look forward to, you know, making some noise um, over the next couple of years. I love that. And it really sounds to me like you two are such a good example of making your own luck by hustling with your eyes open. You know, you started in a totally different direction, but you came in with an open mind and open eyes and you jumped on an opportunity you saw and just hustled. So I think that's such a great piece of advice and you were definitely, definitely embodying it. Amazing. I appreciate that. And uh, yeah, it's been a fun journey so far and I can't wait to, to see what happens next. We're excited. Well, thank you so much for coming on. For listeners out there who want to learn more about you or Mickey, where should I send them? Um, my email is jesse at mickeytrading.com. J-E-S-S-E at Mickey Trading. Um, and uh, I would love to, to connect with anybody that that might want to chat. Well, thanks for your time today, Jesse. I learned a ton and I'm sure the audience did as well. Thanks for having for coming on. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much.